Hey, Sam. Hey, Teresa. What's up? Not much. I actually just had class registration today for next semester, which I'm really excited about. Oh, shit. What classes are you taking? Um, I'm taking, well, I'm done with my major now. I have like one more class. So yeah, this is going to be my last semester of getting requirements out of the way, which is going to leave senior year all the way open for me to do whatever I want. Maybe like add something on. I'm really excited. And my like favorite ex-professor is teaching a class on nature in like America in like 1800 or something. Something like really specific. (laughs) But it's only 10 kids, and I got in, so I'm really excited for that. Hey, you got in. Probably nine kids signed up. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, 18 signed up. Um, so, you know, I feel a little special. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Actually, you just reminded me. There's something weighing on my chest, like, for this week that I forgot to do, and it was to sign up for classes because <laughs> early registration closed. Oh. Well, no, it's just early registration closed at the end of the week. I'm, like, pretty much chilling. All I have left for my poli-sci major is, like, electives, which are super chill classes anyways. But I feel like my biggest problem is just, like, deciding which classes to take now and which to save when hopefully we're in person senior year. Because this semester I took a bunch of really cool classes, but some of them I was like, damn, I really should have saved this for like an in-person environment um so mm-hmm. we'll see how that weighs but yeah I feel like I'm pretty on track for stuff signing up for classes always stresses me out it doesn't make me excited because I hate planning things and making decisions it's like my it's my biggest weakness <laughs> whenever I sign up for classes I like find one really cool class and I'm like fuck it, I'm just going to switch my major. And <laughs> it always, like, goes through my head for, like, an hour. And then I'm like, nah, we're good, we're good. Um, but, yeah, it's always, like, an hour-long, like, mini-crisis. Yeah, and then, like, yeah, then sometimes, like, last semester, you actually do switch your major from PPE to poli-sci. <laughs> <laughs> That's you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, you see that... American transcendentalism in the 1800s class and you're like that might be what's right for me (laughs) yeah Sam for sure (laughs) wait okay also let's air out Teresa's uh dirty laundry because how many times have you called me about switching a major okay to be fair I wanted to switch from (laughs) politics philosophy and economics to political science which is like literally uh, and English. You forgot about English. Oh, no shame in my game. I wanted to do English because I value a liberal arts education. But <laughs> I realized that I had no English credits <laughs> and would need to do all of them. So I became a cinema studies minor instead. And cinema studies used to be in the English department. And like half the classes are crossed with English. So who's winning yeah. here? me i was not hating yeah you've only chosen good majors you've never like came to me and been like i want to be an astrophysicist i think then i'd be like i 
told, like, I have never had that freak out where I'm like, shit, I should be pre-med, shit, I should be econ. Like, my freak outs are always, am I getting enough of a liberal arts education? <laughs> Which to my parents, like, every time I come back from break, they're like, um, please figure out your life, Teresa. And I'm like, um, I'm just going to devolve into another major. Okay. But anyway, speaking of cinema studies, um, today we are super excited because we will be interviewing Takeshi Fukunaga about his movie, A New Mosir. And um, this movie was absolutely incredible. So yeah, we'll be interviewing him over a cup of glow water. Great, let's get into it. So for today's drink, Sam has chosen glow water. And the only reason why I complied was because it sounded lit. Glow, glow, glow. Nope, <laughs> it's not lit because it's just it is lit. water, mint, and um, what was the third ingredient we put in here? Lemon. Huh? Oh yeah, lemon. Yeah. But have you taken your glow water? into the dark oh shit because do you know why it's called glow water i'll give you like one guess i have no idea <laughs> take it into the dark it'll glow and then like if you're ever like lost or like having like a really hard time seeing in a dark place and you don't have lights and it's like really, really dark and you just need to see like a couple feet in front of you, you can pour tonic water, put lemon in it. I don't really think the mint is necessary at all, but it does make it taste better so that after you're done illuminating the dark place that you're in, you find your keys, you like find your way out of like a cave or something. <gasps> then after that, did you have a nice drink least efficient way to get help i can just imagine some bougie corporate male just being like well now time i guess i just drink my Lacroix and add a lemon and find my way through the dark if it works it works that's all i can say but yeah actually i think i might have just lied i think you also have to shine a black light on it oh, so, yeah. <laughs> If you are lost under a black light, <laughs> that's what it can do for you. Instead of asking for help, make some glow water. You heard it here first. But um, I know that beyond the drink, we're really excited for the show today. We have got a great interview with Takeshi Fukunaga, the director of Ainu Musir. Yeah, we both really loved film. There's just so many beautiful elements to the film, um, but mostly I think what me and Teresa both highlighted was the way that it really shines a light on an underrepresented community in Japan and tells this beautiful story with a bunch of non-actors um, about this community and about a boy and his growing up. Yeah, beautifully said, Sam. Um, I think that Takeshi was really intentional in the way that <clears throat> he portrayed an indigenous people. And it was just really beautiful how he showed various parts of their culture from language to um, growing up through different generations and traditions. And um, yeah, just overall very beautiful 
film to watch and something that feels just very original and very intentionally made. So with that, do we want to call up Takeshi right now? Yep, let's call him up. Hey. How are you? Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Sam. Hi, Takeshi. Not in a car this time. Upgrade. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yes. uh, new time. New time. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for setting this up. We're super excited to talk to Takeshi about his film and, yeah, just filmmaking process in general. Thank you yeah. for having me. Um, the first question that I was wondering about is that I heard on this film you worked with a lot of um, people who didn't have a lot of acting experience. And what was it like um, working with them? And do you feel like you had to do more coaching than normal? Um, so yeah, pretty much all the cast are I know no actors uh, except a few um, like a few roles. Um, like tourist or like the journalist or the teacher. Um, but um, I didn't really do uh, coaching or like a training, uh, even like rehearsals. Uh, it was, um, but the challenge was, you know, like you said, that they, were, they didn't have a uh, experience acting, you know, in, in movie or any other um, uh, platform. So um, what I tried to do, was to bring out their natural selves uh, as much as possible um, into the film. And, uh, and then one of the um, uh, approaches I took was to write the script uh, based on you know, um, who they really are, and, and, but didn't ask them to memorize the lines, but instead uh, to speak freely as much as possible. Uh, you know, of course, there are some lines to that uh, needed to be said to you know construct a story, but um, like they were free to say you know uh, improvise some lines or uh, free to say how they want you know how they say those like important lines, and um, as a result, like half of the films um, like about you know half of the lines in the film are like improvised. Mm. Did that ever take this story in a different direction than it was originally intended to? Or did it all kind of center around the same original story? Uh, the main story was there, you know, in the script. Uh, and then because otherwise, you know, you, you, can, you can, you know, keep shooting forever. Right? <laughs> and, you know, any, any ending or, you know, something. Um, so there are the main, you know, storyline, and then you know, again, there are some lines that need to be said to, you know, um, you know, make those, you know, uh, uh, you know, connect, you know, point A to point B, but um, but the lines were, you know, of, you know, oftentimes really, you know, uh, spoken um, uh, by themselves, and uh, and then when they, whenever they say something really, like you know, uh, you know, that, that captures who they are or like really authentic, you know, um, like I ask him to repeat the rhyme in the, in the next take. So like, uh, the, the more, uh, as I, as we did more takes, 
kind of like rhymes became more um, like solidified in a way. Yeah, and no, I was gonna say that's amazing because it doesn't feel like improvised at all. Like it feels completely like the story flows so nicely. Um, so kind of going with that, um, the themes that you had going, why did you feel it was also important to have sort of like a coming of age aspect to the film rather than just a film about like the a new community and its people? Right. Um, you know, to, I mean, so I started this, when I started this project, you know, first I just went to different towns and then talked to uh, as many people as possible. And, and then really, you know, uh, learn about them. And then as I was, you know, um, learn more, the, more about, you know, who they are and then, you know, the situations they are facing, uh, you know, the theme of identity really uh, came up, you know, as one of the um, an important themes to, to depict um, people living in today's society. And, and making the protagonist a uh, um, teenager and then making it more of a coming of age story I thought, you know, I could make it more like universal uh, story that, you know, um, more people can relate to. Definitely. Um, and I guess something that I was wondering is, since this isn't a community that you necessarily grew up in, did you ever feel like an outsider? And how did you deal with like telling a story that wasn't necessarily, did you ever feel like it wasn't your story to tell? I mean, it's it's hard to say, well, so I was, you know, uh, well aware that, you know, I'm telling a story of Ainu as an outsider, as a, as a Japanese person, although I, you know, was born and raised in Hokkaido. Um, so it was, um, so I try to be careful um, as far as like how to make it and then like how to, how to work with them and then, um, and of course, like what kind of story I would tell, and and I you know of course, like this isn't like my you know this isn't really like autobiographical or anything like that. But at the same time, I do see the value of being an outsider uh, uh, to tell a certain story uh, because, like, even let's say. There isn't an Ainu film director uh, today, uh, although you know there could be one in the near future. Um, and then they might say uh, tell uh, a different kind of story in a different way, and then that has a huge value, you know, in it, of course. But at the same time, um, because I'm not Ainu, I think I took a different approach and to tell this kind of story in this way, and. Um, uh, but I was, yes, but I was aware that I'm an outsider and then I had to be very careful and then respectful as far as uh, what kind of approach I take uh, when, when, when I make this movie. And so at what point did you know that you wanted to tell a story about the Ainu people? Um, the first time I thought about this is actually quite a while ago, um, 
So I, again, I was born and raised in Hokkaido, uh, which is northern Japan and where uh, I'm people lived. Um, uh, I mean, people are indigenous too. And, but, you know, growing up, I never had a proper education about Ainu or their uh, history or culture. Um, and then unfortunately, the Ainu people are still very much underrepresented in Japanese society today. And most of people don't know much about them in Japan. And it was only after I moved to US to study abroad that uh, I realized I, you know, didn't know anything about them. And so, like, then you know, soon after I, you know, like making a film about them, uh, a fiction film about them was, I thought, could it be something you know meaningful to really raise awareness on Ainu. One of my favorite parts of the film, the things you did, did with it, was the soundtrack and how um, the music bounced between like these rock songs and more traditional songs and like karaoke and all these different things. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering, did you have that vision going in or did it kind of come more naturally um, while you were just like with the community and exploring the store? Uh, because they don't have a, a written language, uh, their you know stories and songs were an important part of their you know life and you know culture. So, he, so he just like to as I was you know trying to you know um, depict you know who they are today, it just the music was there already. Yeah, mm -hmm. was there any reason that you chose to keep it like relatively um, quiet when Anto was alone? He seemed very reserved character. Uh, the silence, I guess. It one of the part you know part it's probably because I I just like the natural sound and then you know like listening to um, nature and then nature is a you know uh, is a big character as far as you know uh, the Akan of the town and also um, you know it, it's an important part of the Ainu culture and then to give um, you know great presence to the nature you know uh, I wanted to create. Uh, many scenes with just like you know um, ambient sound of nature. So, but I never really <clears throat> like plan to make. Okay, I'm gonna make a quiet film or you know like very reserved character. It just kind of naturally became that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess since it was so based on who the characters really were, it seems like a lot of what you did is just like working with who they naturally were, which I really love. Um, I guess one of my other questions was what did you ever feel any pressure not to fall into like the typical coming of age tropes that we often see? Um, I don't know what the typical coming of age tropes are. <laughs> but uh well no, I mean I wasn't yeah, I don't even know what the typical coming of age story is, so yeah, yeah. I guess what I meant by that is like a character having some like big realization about themselves and it's like kind of gets a little bit corny. Did you ever feel like you need to stay away from that? Um, okay, so uh, in that sense, I try to avoid, um, how do I say, like giving a, a clear conclusion for this question or for his struggle you know a, 
Kanto himself in you know uh, in real life, you know he was hesitant to like practice you know Ainu you know dance or uh, songs. Uh, he was a lot more interested in like you know playing American music or you know uh, listening to you know pop songs and and then so that kind of you know his inner questions about you know his identity and roots. Uh, he actually is, but at the same time, it's not something that you know we you know he can find a, a easy answer for. And I didn't want to kind of um, paint a, a black and white picture in the end. So um, I guess you know it kind of goes back to the same you know answer. So that's because that's who he is because he's still. Uh, um, you know, dealing with that question, you know, I didn't plan to uh, give her kind of another, uh, like, Korean answer for it. Um, another thing that I obviously noticed about the, you know, the boy story is that, you know, he experienced the recent loss of his father. And so one thing I was thinking was that it kind of allowed the character of Debo or Debo to... Kind of step into that role more easily so was that the main reason why you kind of had that part of um the boy's loss or what what type of role did you envision the loss of the father playing in the film in general right um first of all that's a that's a fictionalization his father his dear father is still alive um yeah and then you know like but that that was yeah made to dramatize the story but uh the loss of his father as a as a story element was uh is um thematically you know connected to his struggle with his you know identity and and his roots because you know like uh the, as as a setting um because he before he lost his father he was more um, active, you know, practicing Ainu dance and songs uh, with his father. And then since, you know, he lost his father, he became more uh, distant from it. And then, and then, you know, dealing with the loss of his father is connected to him dealing with uh, what's behind, you know, his father and, you know, his like, uh, ancestors. And so that was kind of um, a way to kind of um so the loss of his father is kind of a, a symbol of his struggle in a way definitely and kind of shifting gears a little bit um how do you feel about having this film um go to netflix so quickly is it exciting to have the film have such a broad audience yes it's super exciting i mean you know so it's playing in series in japan uh, because, you know, of course, coronavirus is here, but, you know, theaters are open, thankfully. And, um, but um, reaching to, uh, you know, a wider audience through Netflix is, is something that, you know, I, you know, like the best thing I could wish for, for this kind of movie. You know, it's, um, you know, now it's a foreign language film about, you know, indigenous people in Japan that, you know, most of people don't know about. And if it wasn't for Ava and Array, you know, I don't think I, I don't know if I had that opportunity to be able to really share the film with uh, violence. 
and 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 even going to Netflix, you know, there are so many movies, and you know, it could be just a small, you know, part of a huge library, and that you know nobody noticed. But because it's you know, um, you know, Ava and then Are are doing an amazing job, and then because they have the uh, um, a goal to give a voice to uh, marginalized, you know, um, people. I think, uh, like many, a lot more people are responding to it and then taking a note, you know, on the film, which is so. Uh, and then I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. Have you felt that difference in reception? Have you felt a lot of people flocking to this film, and have you gotten feedback? Uh, I have. I mean. It's hard to see feedback. I mean, like, of course, I can like Google search or you know search on Twitter, but I haven't really done that so much. But uh, there are some people actually send me a, a personal email to my website and then say how much they like love the film. So I'm getting some feedbacks. Yes. Oh wow! So you don't Google yourself ever? No. no, no. <laughs> um. So I read that this film, it's still like not released in Japan, right? Um, no, it is released. I don't know where you read it, but it's playing uh, in... Yeah, there are some... Is that Unseen Japan? That's the wrong information, actually. It's playing at theaters and then to a really great re- reception that like their uh, run um, has been extended like um, in Tokyo and other parts of Japan. Oh, okay. Um, so have you noticed a difference in like the way what people are taking away in Japan versus like globally from the film? Mm, it's hard to tell um, because I haven't received enough uh, reaction from people from outside. Like, you know, like for example, the film went to festivals, but I've never had a you know, a chance to actually be there with, you know, and, you know, and see the reaction of the audience in person, you know, because of this situation. Um, but here in Japan, a lot of people are, um, you know, responding to it, you know, um, really well. And, and many of them see that as a great, um, like a learning experience as well. Uh, because, you know, again, um, recognition and understanding of Ainu in Japan is still um, very, uh, still not in a great place. So like to see like how they are and then, you know, like what kind of like uh, thoughts and, um, you know, like struggle they have is is um, a unique experience for, for many uh, people in Japan. Yeah, no, definitely that's super powerful, especially because you know how to tell a story intentionally. And um, I feel like it's educating a lot of people. But in your opinion, also, like, what do you think is the best way for people in general to learn more about, um, like, communities, indigenous communities that have historic historically been, you know, like, fetishized in... Um, culture just like globally besides using film or art what do you think is the best way to educate people on these subjects hmm. it's um it's a difficult question i don't know what's the 
best way, uh, but I think the best approach is to, you know, to never feel too confident about uh, understanding them or like to, um, well, stay conscious that, you know, um, you know, there could, there could always be a lot more to learn, you know, and then never stop learning about them or trying to learn about them. And, you know, of course, like, you know, reading books or, you know, uh, seeing art, uh, is, uh, one way, but another way is actually talking to them in person if they, you have an opportunity. And, but again, but in the end, none of them would be enough to fully experience or understand uh, their situation and, you know, who they really are. So, you know, again, you know, you know, one thing we should uh, remind ourselves is to, to never stop running. Definitely. And what do you feel like was the most challenging part of making the film? There are so many challenges I had, but um, I guess like finding casts and you know um, working with their own, their schedules and their you know again like bringing out uh, natural performances into the film. Like, you know, there are no actors and they, you know, all of them have their own jobs and, you know, things to do. So uh, to coordinate uh, their schedule to be in the film was was very difficult. Like, you know, there's uh, one uh, one point, there is a a funeral of somehow many of them know, and all of a sudden, like, you know, half of the cast disappeared, you know, and then we (laughs) we just couldn't shoot the scene. And then, and then of course, like nobody could, you know, tell them to not go to you know funeral. You know, so so there are these like constant um, challenges or schedule change and and just like a random thing you know pop up because you know they are you know doing us a favor you know to be in the film and then we had to walk around. Did that ever influence any of the takes? Like, was it ever like? we're not going to have this person available for the ne- another month. This is the one time we're going to get this take or anything like that. Uh, not quite right. But, you know, sometimes uh, we just change the scene or setting because we have fewer casts. So we, you know, we, you know, um, or we just didn't have a, like, uh, good weather. So we just, you know, uh, we just made it a uh, raining scene. It's, um, you know, there's one of the scenes in the forest uh, where Kanto uh, is, you know, sitting with devil under the rain. That wasn't supposed to be the rain, but it became that. Uh, but it was a good um, happening in the end because, you know, um, it, it, you know, it looks beautiful uh, on camera. And then devil gave such a powerful <clears throat> word uh, that was also improvised that like he say um it's uh, it's a pouring uh but like there's there's a reason for it or something like that uh there's a reason for you know um raining you know in the nature and then so so that was really uh i thought like a poignant you know a uh, way to really um kind of describe the the Ainu's, uh, philosophy and then, and then after you know, we shot uh, many like um, 
nature like still you know shots and then made you know uh, uh made a scene in the editing room so that was so in a way that scene was really a uh, close collaboration with you know him and us yeah yeah and nature kind of too mm -hmm. another scene that i wanted to ask about was the bear sending ceremony i how did how was that shot and also I really liked how you overlaid like the TV sort of view and then like the real view of it. Um, what was sort of your vision behind that whole scene? Whole scene of the, using the cover footage? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's a controversial ritual, you know, because it uh, deals with uh, killing a bear. And, but it's, it is also an important uh, ritual for um, Ainu culture, and and then there is a um, like you know profound philosophy and and spiritual world behind it that you know we are not necessarily familiar with, and so like I wanted to, I never wanted to like you know exotify it, but. Uh, wanted to show the the beauty and then profound uh, world behind it, and without uh, unnecessarily um, giving a graphic um, expression of the ritual, and and then also I wanted to stay with uh, Kanto's point of view, and so him having him you know watching the old footage, and and then mixing cutting cutting it with the actual happening in the forest, you know, I could um, kind of like um, stay away from the graphic moment of it, but also tell uh, exactly, tell the audience what, what exactly happening. And, and then also st stay with Kanto uh, that way. Um, so, so, so in short, again, you know, like it, the choice was made to describe what's happening without uh, giving a graphic um, um, images of, of that, um, of what's happening. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think those are all the questions we had. Thank you so much for talking to us. Um, we both really love the film and we're wondering what should we be looking out for next? I know you're still in the full um, rollout phase for this film, but are you working on anything coming up or should we look out for anything? Yes, uh, so uh, I've lived in the U.S. for 16 years, uh, but I moved to Tokyo last summer. And uh, one of the main reasons for that is to work on the next film that takes place in Japan. And um, without giving too much, it's, um, it's a period piece that takes place in late 18th century that uh, in uh, uh, happens sets in um, uh, northern Japan, northern part of the main island uh, Tohoku, and um, it's based on old folk tales and uh, deals with kind of like uh, ja unique uh, Japanese animism and some like uh, fantastical story of um, a mystical monster and and then also this like a very uh, small rural like a village mentality of how people kind of uh you know kick out someone you know once uh um a person makes a mistake um just so thematically it's it's about kind of like a foundation of japanese uh, um 
character uh, characteristic and then um, uh, like that kind of a spiritual mentality. Awesome, that sounds really exciting. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I also just want to say I really appreciated how your film, how Animo Zero showed um, like the different aspects of culture, you know, from language to tradition to someone trying to find himself between cultures. I thought that was very well done. That's, yeah. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciated you taking the time to answer questions we had about your film. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Two Virgins. We hope you enjoyed getting to know Takeshi Fukunaga and check out his film, Anumo Zir, on Netflix. You can find this episode on our website, quarantinecontent.com, or on our weekly newsletter, The Q. See you next week.